Standard Issue for all women. Hello there, and welcome to episode 31 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan, and today I'm raising my tickling stick to salute the tatifalarious king of Naughty Ash. Good night, Doddy. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and this week I coined the term nansplaining for that thing your mum does when you tell her a story and she then repeats it back to you in slightly different words. It's a definite phenomenon. And I'm Jen Offord, and I will kill you if you continue your daytime drooling somewhere in the hinterland of the basement of my apartment block. This podcast has very quickly got personal. Mm -hmm. Later on, we chat to bona fide smasher Helen Wormsley-Johnson about her memoir, Look What You Made Me Do, which is a devastating look at domestic abuse focusing on coercive control. Language and bad language enthusiast Cathy Salomon comes in to tell us whether swearing is a sign of a lack of vocabulary or just really fucking cool. (laughs) And Lara Spirit from the campaign group Our Future, Our Choice comes in to talk to us about youth quakes and Brexit. And I do Disney's up. But first... Great new slogans, the good old pay gap and sinister cackling. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we wiggle through the loophole of this week's news and come out laughing for no good reason. Last Thursday, March the 8th, was International Women's Day, and hopefully you've been filling your ear boots, shh, it works, with our bonus podcast featuring some truly kick-ass broads. We weren't alone in our celebrating. For all the, what about men, whinge bags on social media and presumably in their bathrooms masturbating furiously (laughs) over signed photos of Jeremy Clarkson, women across the globe did women proud. Millions of women refused to work, boycotted domestic work and occupied the streets as part of a global strike to highlight the impact of women on society. Spain saw its first female workers' strike. France dropped newspaper prices for women for the day. Cities across India saw women's marches and the International Women's Day flag flew over our parliament. I think my favourite was the Swedish Foreign Ministry's initiative to address the wiki gap. That's right, over on Wikipedia, gender imbalance is rife. Want to guess who's written about more on the world's largest online user-generated encyclopedia? Men or women? What do you reckon? Cats. Um. Cats. Yeah, there's loads on cats. Cats. No... Roughly, there are about four times more articles relating to men than to women. What? But 90% of the people who fill in Wikipedia are men. So, you know, come on, birds, pull your finger out. To wit, more than 50 countries took part in a wiki editathon to try to make the internet more gender equal. Up the women! Can I also add that my neighbour's mum bought me a bottle of wine to celebrate International Women's Day? It's been a few weeks since we talked about America, right? It's been a while, yeah. Which means, of course, that everything has changed all over again. Things aren't looking great for Jared Kushner, something that some, (coughs) me, predicted was as inevitable as a Bible reading during Mike Pence's foreplay. Oh, God, I feel immediately gippy. Kushner's father-in-law, meanwhile, decided to launch his election campaign for 2020, announcing the somewhat bold and entirely unself-aware slogan, (laughs) Keep America Great! (laughs) which is rather like Neville Chamberlain if he denounced he was running in 1940 on the platform. Guys, isn't this piece in our time I totally delivered quite magnificent? <laughs> the big news of the last few weeks has been an apparently happening meeting between the world's other incredibly powerful tantruming child, Kim Jong-un. At a political rally in Pennsylvania, which is like a completely normal thing for a sitting president to do, Trump told supporters he believed North Korea wanted to make peace, 
but added he might leave the talks quickly if it didn't look like progress for nuclear disarmament could be made or if he wanted to go look at some boobies. I'm paraphrasing there. Well, on that subject, just when you thought gaming was all big-titted women getting shagged in the back of a vintage car to a banging disco soundtrack or being spliced from end to end by the razor-sharp hat of a Shaolin monk? Oh no, hang on. I think it still is, actually. Anyway, the good news, not all toxic behaviours and attitudes are acceptable to technology firm Sony, which has blocked the release of Super Seducer on its PlayStation 4 console. The video game, designed to teach male players psychological tricks to help them bag dates with birds, apparently shows women in their grundies being felt up. Though, look, props to the makers, this is an example of something you shouldn't do, and definitely not just an excuse to show birds getting felt up for the benefit of hormonally charged teenagers slash those people who send female MPs online abuse. Someone should probably tell them about the internet. Also, and this is from a screen grab published by the BBC last week, players are asked to select the best copping off strategy from a selection, which includes... Ask her what she does for a living because she looks artistic. <laughs> and that's the sound of my pants dropping. Start touching yourself to get her turned on. I'm really scared about my next bus journey with Jen. <laughs> this is real. This is a real thing that it's really like happened. Genuine in the world. advice. It's got like a multiple answer thing and and then you select what you think is like the best thing to do and one of them's like tell her you like her earrings as an excuse to like touch her her face (laughs) 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 the well-known strategy for face chizzing i think oh nice earrings oh sorry (laughs) do you think they're questions like when you um if you've ever had to work in in catering or you know where pubs, is this going pubs, I'm they always make you do one of these health and safety courses and it's just a massive waste of time and it always comes with questions that basically have a multiple choice one of which is the actual answer such yeah. as what's the best thing to clean a glass with the dishwasher <laughs> your ass your mum your mum yeah are they like that <laughs> Uh, kind of there one of is. them was like find an excuse to t- to take your top off so that you can show your physique go to scotland when it's above three degrees centigrade that's oh. an excuse to take your top off top paid men outstrip women by four to one shock figures reveal says a guardian headline although who this news is supposed to shock is a bit of a quizzer women <laughs> super smart weasels that have just been taught to read doubt it men yeah maybe Turns out there is a huge disparity when it comes to Britain's highest paid posts, with some pay gaps coming in at around 40%. Well, knock us down with a feather, but make it a cheap one, eh? The data comes as the country's biggest companies are forced to publish payrolls by gender by April. Ready for another shocker? Brace yourself. Seems several major firms had taken advantage of a loophole regarding company partners paid a share of the profit rather than a salary in an attempt to mask the full extent of their pay gaps. I think my eye roll just broke records and possibly a ligament. And the surprises just keep coming. Yep, you guessed it. High salary city firms are among the worst performers. Virgin Money comes in at 32.5% and accountancy firm Deloitte is a staggering 43%. Oh dear, slow claps all round. Indeed. I can only assume from that headline that The Guardian pays all its women's staff the same amount as it pays its men's staff. Well, let's assume so. And also... FOI arriving in five, <laughs> four... Alexa, can you tell me where the nearest place I can wash my soiled pants is? I'm uh, sorry, I don't understand the question. 
tax-avoiding purveyor of cheap books and curtain poles, Amazon, was forced to promise to fix a glitch with its Alexa voice assistant this week following complaints by users. Amazon said it was aware of a glitch with the Terabot, which prompted it to let out unsolicited creepy cackles without being woken by users. According to the retailers, in rare cases, Alexa can mistakenly hear the phrase Alexa laugh and that they were rewording the command to eliminate false positives. They added, we are changing Alexa's response from simple laughter to sure, I can laugh, followed by laughter, because that won't be scary <laughs> when she laughs. When she responds thus, without invitation, as you lie alone in bed at night. Or, or not alone. I think that might be weirder. So I was in an apartment that had an Alexa this weekend, and I've never played with one before. Turns out she doesn't understand Northern, just fucking ignored me the whole time. And the person was I was with, who has a Southern accent, had to then tell her what I just said. I, I believe Scottish people have that problem a lot with voice control technology yeah and geordie's i think as well yeah. but yeah i tried the alexa laugh thing and she would not respond to me at all and then i tried normal questions like where should i wash my soiled pants and yep zilch there's something kind of philip k dick about an artificial intelligence that is hearing this constant call mm. to be asked to laugh when nobody wants to hear the <laughs> laughter oh an embarrassment of riches in what to pick for my in other news story. Mattel announces a Nicola Adams Barbie. Oh, yeah. And an Amelia Earhart Barbie. Woo -woo. And then the real life Amelia Earhart's bones seem to have been identified, which means that we might one day learn how that story ended. Hang on, did Mattel have them? <laughs> <laughs> I find it quite interesting that the bones they've apparently found on um, an island... And they had presumed for the last 50 years that they were the bones of a man. You'd think... Taking credit for even the bones <laughs> of the woman nowadays. Also, you'd think that would be something they could identify, right? Well, I think she was quite statuesque, Amelia Earhart. So perhaps her, like, her thigh bones were longer than an average woman's, maybe. I don't know. Hmm. Don't know. Mm. Not a bone expert. Me either. Do you know what other story I haven't even got time to fit in either? Go on. Citizens in an Estonian district held a vote to decide what symbol to put on their new flag and coat of arms and ended up with a cannabis leaf. Oh. Which mm -hmm. isn't quite as Boaty McBoatface as it sounds, given the district is called Kenepi and Kenep is the Estonian word for marijuana. Or as my mum says, marijuana. Yeah. But I'm going to go with this story from Belgium, where a man has been convicted of sexism in a public place for the first time. Brussels court fined him €3,000 for insulting a police officer because of her gender and said if he refused to pay, he would be given a month in jail. Now, you might well be having some gut feelings about that story, so let me just tell you what Gilles Blondeau, spokesman for the Public Prosecutor's Office, said after the conviction, because it certainly answered a lot of my immediate questions. He said, This is the first time we have used this law to prosecute someone. It is quite common for people arrested by the police to insult and threaten, but to personally blame a policewoman because of her sex is different. It was a good case to test this law, a concrete and very clear case with many witnesses. This is obviously not always the case. So, yeah, if your gut reaction was, how the hell do they enforce that? They are aware of that. Mm -hmm. And I suppose if this law only ends up being able to protect women in the police force or some other public service, then good for Belgium for protecting some women from abuse. 
By the way, if your gut reaction was a load of whataboutery about catching real criminals, you know, fuck off. Well, that sounds like political correctness gone mad to me. <laughs> I'm Brussels. That, that Brussels court, I mean, yeah, they might be finding that man €3,000 for insulting a bird, but... What about my bananas? That is exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> That's all I know. Some just bananas. What about my bananas, eh? Fancy a bit more good news? Yeah. yeah. The Weinstein Company avoided bankruptcy at the 11th hour by being bought by a group of women. Hey. That's right. The company, which has been in economic freefall since the horrific alleged actions of professional spaff rat Harvey Weinstein, started coming to light in October, was purchased for around £362 million by a group of mostly female investors led by former Obama aide Maria Contreras Sweet. Oh, hey, Karma. May I say, that is a smashing blouse you have on. Contera Suite explained the company will be changing its name and the plan is to build a movie studio led by a board of directors made up of a majority of independent women. There will also be a victim's compensation fund to supplement existing insurance coverage for those who have been harmed. And scene. More news next week. Spaffrat. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we dig deep into the makeup bag of sexism and carefully apply prejudice all over our faces. And I mean, looking like that, we've only got ourselves to blame when we don't get the respect we deserve, right? According to a new study, delightedly reported on by the Daily Telegraph, women who aspire to be great leaders should, quote, put down the lipstick and go easy on the mascara. Yep, the link between lipstick and diminished brain cells that we've long suspected is now science, as opposed to bullshit. Abate University in Dundee found people judge women made up as if for a social night out to have poorer leadership skills than those who hadn't used cosmetics. Because, of course, we should be encouraging people to judge women on their looks. Nice one, Abate University, you fucknuts. The findings fly in the made-up face of Harvard University research done a couple of years ago, which found that women who wore makeup were deemed more competent at their jobs. It's weird, isn't it? It's almost as if what's in a woman's head, rather than what's on her face, is the key to whether she's good at her job. But of course I realise that could be crazy talk. I am wearing two coats of mascara today, so I'm not to be trusted. Apart from when I'm to be more trusted. Damned if we do, damned if we don't. So we just suggest keeping doing your face as you damn well please. I wondered if we should mention Kate Middleton's... Fingers. Equal length fingers that aren't equal in length. (laughs) Oh yeah, the Daily Mail did two pages of copy that I haven't bothered to read, to be honest, because it was also a front page splash, so I felt I got the gist of the story. The the sort of circle of shame around Kate Middleton's fingers that said, why are Kate Middleton's fingers all the same length? I would imagine because her parents have fingers exactly the same because it's genetic. I think it's because she's a witch. Okay. No? Well, I mean, it could be. There is this thing about fingers that are slightly strange anyway because, you know, your index finger is supposed to be longer than your ring finger, but in a lot of people, it's not. And in my case, my ring finger's longer than my index finger. Maybe you're a witch too. Yeah, no, apparently. It's just (laughs) same as all the members of my family. It's... Hey, come on now, when we're talking about women, genetics, witches, it's all the same thing, right? Mm. Well, just yeah. snakes with tits and yeah. oddly shaped, equally length fingers. They weren't even an equal length. No, they weren't. They, <laughs> they weren't. literally weren't. It's almost like the Daily Mail struggling for news on how to oppress women. Try harder. 
Hello, we are joined in the studio by the wonderful Helen Wormsley-Johnson, writer. You used to write for us at Standard Issue, didn't you, Helen? I did. I used to write a lot about cats and countryside. Well, I mean, what Best is not to love? Best things to write yeah. about. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Helen's in to talk about her new book. It's a memoir called Look What You Made Me Do. It's about domestic violence and coercive relationships. We used to write to each other a lot and... Then there were emails and faxes and I got my diary entries and we had notebooks where, you know, I'd leave a notebook on the kitchen table and I'd write a note to him and then he'd write a note back to me. So I'd got all this stuff that was actually his voice. I'd sort of told myself that this had been my great love affair. But when I sorted it out into date order, first because it was all sort of jumbled up and stuffed in a bag and and put it in a lever arch file in date order and read it through and I could see exactly what had happened. And the thing with coercive control is the pattern. The pattern doesn't matter when it happened. If you think of Henry VIII and Catherine Howard, it was the same thing. If you think of Ruth Ellis and David Blakely, it was the same thing. It's The pattern is exactly the same. The circumstances might be different, but it's this sort of rush-you-off-your-feet thing. I've got letters that are so, oh, you're so beautiful, I love you so much, I can't believe, you know, this is really... Because Frank, uh, not his real name, was engaged to somebody when we met, and he told me that right at the beginning. So, so he could say, you know, well, I told you about this, I was honest, you know. It's always a reluctant, you know, I don't want to do this, but the so sort of implying that you're so wonderful, so beautiful, so funny and clever, that he just can't help himself. He's not in control of himself. And whose fault is that? And that's mine, yeah. Yeah. Or yours. Was he actually engaged to somebody else? Well, I don't know, because when I got to the end of of all this, I realised that I actually know very little about him that I could ever say absolutely categorically that is true it becomes clear in the book that he wants access to absolutely every facet of your life and not just access it becomes control like your bank accounts everything yeah but he gave so little of himself away yeah yeah and that's how he that's got that control that's right but they you see you you wouldn't touch them with a barge pole if they were the way they are in the end, right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But it starts off, Frank came into my life at a time that was a very difficult time for me. I had friends, I got a social life, I got my children, I was I was doing well. I wasn't actually looking for a long-term relationship, but I was looking for a diversion. And Frank was the diversion. You tell yourself you're a grown-up. You know, I was in my 40s and, you, and, and I got almost grown-up girls and you think, well... Yeah, it's going to be a bit of fun. I can handle this. But I did look at him um, the morning after we spent the first night together and had a flash of what you might call intuition and thought to myself, he's going to break your heart. And I thought, I won't let him. But then you get swept along with it because it was what I needed at the time. And it's what I think any woman who falls into this needs at the time is somebody who will sort of make it all go away. And the kind of man, because we're talking about, but well, the kind of person who yeah, does it this behaviour. Yeah, it is usually men. But, I mean, it is but, usually men. But, it is, but you do get it the other way as well. I think but, we probably don't know. I think men find it much harder to admit. Women can't admit that it's happened. It's the shame of it. But I think men probably find it harder because it is so alien to the culture around being a man. So you can't say you've been manipulated and coerced by a woman if you're a man. So I think it's much harder. The person perpetuating this kind of abuse, though, I think absolutely has an eye for the vulnerability in the other person. 
and they hone in on it. However well you think you've covered it up. Absolutely. There are little things that give you away, I think. I don't know what it was. I mean, he did write to me when we'd been together for over a year, I think. I'd said something to him about that and he said, he said, you're right to say that the fact that you needed me attracted me even more. He admitted that, but I don't think he saw the significance of that. I don't think he understood that to take somebody... Um, put them so completely under your control is wrong. There were moments of physical violence as well, Mm. but you do concentrate on the coercive nature of how he controlled you. But down to, like, he made you lose weight. He made you, like, not hang out with your friends. He'd just turn up outside restaurants and be waiting outside the window, phoning you so you couldn't be Yeah, phoning me saying, where are you? And he could see me through the window. I think coercive control, it's not understood terribly well because the way we measure domestic violence still is in injury and bruising and and what you can see physically. And coercive control, that isn't the hallmark of it, but it will be used. I think it's inevitable that there will be violence in there because it's part of the pattern. But men like Frank don't need to use violence a lot. They do it just occasionally, just so that you know that they can. And I was listening to an interview on Radio 4 with Louisa Rolfe, I think it was, and she's the, um, I think she's a deputy chief constable. She's the lead for policing domestic abuse and the, the policy in the police force. She hit it on the head. She said, how do you police a look? And you can't, but the look is part of the pattern. If you're out somewhere and you're enjoying yourself a bit too much and you get the look, you immediately know what that means and you you stop straight away. And just occasionally, if you transgress, there will be violence. But the violence itself is also diminished. You know, so Frank called it a slap. You know, he said a slap is nothing compared to what you did to me, meaning I'd been horrible to him. But it wasn't a slap. It was a punch in the head. <laughs> or, um, he'd grab you by your hair and drag you He grabbed me by my house. hair. That happened a lot. I got dragged all over the place by my hair in, in the flat we shared. But his thing was strangling. I call it strangling. It's often referred to as choking. And uh, choking sort of diminishes it. Strangling is what it is. And it, strangling is, is something that doesn't often leave a mark. And any damage it does is internal to your throat. And there were two instances where you actually, you write down that you thought, that's it, I'm gone. Yeah, I did. I did. He's going to kill me. Yeah. Yes. But yeah. at no point, because you were so in that relationship and the control was so complete, mm. you didn't think to go to the police. That didn't cross your mind because you were just I, trying to fix it. Part of it as well is, is um, it's the shame. It's the shame and the guilt. And you think that no one's going to take any notice of you because you've not been bounced around the furniture three times a week. Can I ask, when you say the shame, do you mean the shame that you allowed it to happen or the shame that you're making a fuss about something that other people suffer worse or no, it's a combination the shame, it's of It's personal shame. It's the shame that you allowed it you to happen. You're allowing it to happen. And yeah. it's also that you've been told for weeks on end on, on a loop that you are worthless, pointless, you can't do things, you can't work, you can't... I, you know, I didn't breathe properly. I'd sit, I remember sitting on the sofa, you're not breathing properly. Well, I'm breathing. <laughs> how do you mean? He says, no, you're breathing in and out. You should be breathing up and down. What? <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd what you explain. You know, I don't, I don't understand that. Oh, you know, my feet, my feet pointing in, you know, kicking my feet. If my shoulder's rounded, which I do a lot, you know. 
the crack you on the back of the shoulders. Yeah, slap me between the shoulders, make me stand up straight. So it's and it's it's constant. And however, but he's just doing it to make you better. Yes, that's how it's presented. Yes, it will make you much better. You'll be improved. Yeah, so go to the gym and do these. Your your diet was all set, and what you were allowed to eat, and how many bench presses or whatever you were doing, you had to do. And and the the I could only put. I tried to put in the whole of that. I think about three quarters through the book when he'd actually he was living in France again, and so he was controlling me from another country. But, but he would come back from time to time to check my progress. You know, there's always this sort of carrot dangle that you're going to be together. And oh, I love you, really. You know that. He sent me, it was four double-sided pages of A4 exercises over a five-day period. So everything for a five-day period, plus what I was supposed to be eating and the times I was supposed to be eating it. And while I was doing all this, I was supposed to be checking my heart rate as well. So he explained to me how I did that. And it was, I'm number blind. I can't, you know, and, and it was percentages of this and three times that. And and this is what you should be doing. And you should, because of you and your age, you should be working up to 75% of this maximum. So it's enough to, uh, Einstein could work it out. <laughs> Can I ask about something about his background? His sort of socio-economic background, what he did for a living. He was a company director, university educated. Certainly the company director bit was true. University educated, I've not seen an actual certificate, but I think that's that's true. Sort of upper middle class, I should think. I don't want to make excuses for this man because he sounds inexcusable, but I just wondered (laughs) if you ever got a sense for why he was the way he was. Did he ever display any kind of vulnerability that... Well, he would he would display vulnerability when he thought he was losing control of me. There would be what I would now describe as a tantrum. There were a couple of occasions, one in particular where he'd done the hair dragging thing and chucked me into the bedroom, and I just sort of stayed there very quietly, and I could hear him sobbing, and he was he'd thrown himself on the floor. And he was sobbing his heart out. And, you know, a six foot plus man doing that and it's all your fault is heartbreaking. I have been in a similar relationship. Mm. It wasn't as horrific as yours and Frank's, but there were massive similarities that I was Mm. nodding as I was reading this book. Mm. And I have women in my life who I know have been in similar situations Mm. and that gaslighting that actually you're the one in the wrong. They're the victim. And those mm. sobbings or, mm. well, you make me ang- look what you made me do. But also, well, you're the angry one in this relationship because mm. if you stick up for yourself, then you're the angry one who's got mm. problems. And if you cry, then you're a hysterical mm. woman mm. and they can't mm. deal with you. Yes, he talked about that. Yes, he's, uh, it was. I was looking for things that was very careful about what he said about things in the letters So about violence and there was one thing that I sort of missed which referred to to that you know I mean he he did say that he thought my hand he looked at my handwriting he said well that shows that you're mentally disturbed and thought thank you which has affected my handwriting ever since (laughs) because I do things now both ways I do I flip things so that one way will be right and I won't be in trouble for it he wrote a sort of complicated thing that was he said if if I hit you and it's wrong anyway. Um, I thought, well, he's not said he did. He said if. And then he said, and when I do it, it, it is to calm your crises. Don't forget, he's, he's 
not English, his English is his second language. So it, to calm to calm me down, I'm a hysterical woman, so I need a slap to to calm me down and stop me hurting myself. You know, it's it's for protection. Really. I'm doing this for your own good. Yes. Well, yeah. basically, yeah. your behaviour, no yeah. matter how hard you tried. And in the book, you kind of go, I'm reading these letters that I have written and I am mortified that I have put yeah. myself in this position yes. where I'm going, oh, please forgive me. And yes. I remember like yeah. crying, please forgive me. And then you look back yeah. and I'm like, what the fuck? And yeah. so when people say, why doesn't she just leave, which is yeah. such an annoying sentence, I look back at my life and go, why the fuck didn't you just leave? I mm. couldn't. I, th- I think... Um, so many of us. I th- I, this is the problem, and I'm sure it's it's a, a large part of the reason that we're seeing the figures sort of leap, the crime figures leap at the moment. Although coercive control is not one of those, but domestic abuse and rape and and things like that, we're we're seeing those figures go up and up and up because women are slowly losing the shame and embarrassment about admitting to to not having been able to walk away from it, and and you you've think well why why is that i couldn't have i couldn't have written this book when my father was still alive for example well see that is interesting because i i mm. think uh, i mean i have some experience not mm. actually personally but again people around me some of whom are currently still in those relationships which is quite upsetting but i think there is that situation in which you know a man i know will say to me that he he fails some sort of obligation to go around and sort this out for mm, his yes. sister, yeah. daughter, yes. whatever, whoever yes. it is. You're, yeah. And the answer always is that is only going to make, make it, it worse. worse. Mm. And so yeah. it's it's not just that it will be upsetting mm. to those people. It's mm. what reactions it's going mm. to set off mm. in those people. Mm. And the reaction being, oh, everybody in the pub was saying that I beat you. Or, yes. And it's, yes. it's yeah. the repercussions are always going to come back on the yeah. same person. Yeah. I, I, um, this is the problem with um, stalking, which is now part of the coercive control. That came into play guide, last year, guidelines didn't it? for yes, because it it was. I think as as I think I'm right in saying this, when the guidelines and the and coercive control became law in 2015, stalking by somebody that you'd had a relationship with or that you knew wasn't considered to be a crime. That has been changed by the work that one charity, Paladin in, in particular, have, have done. In the book, I mentioned Alice Ruggles, who was killed by her boyfriend, and he had stalked her. She reported him. Police, I think, or anybody else, sometimes struggle to see what is so frightening about somebody driving 200 miles to leave a box of chocolates and a bunch of flowers on your windowsill. Oh, Actually, it's a bit creepy, yes, yeah. but they don't see that. So, well, would you like us to speak to him? God, no, because you know what he's going to do. Well, we can, we can pick him up and serve one of these notices on him to desist. These people, it will not stop them doing that. What If they're arrested, are you going to be able to keep me safe when you let him go because when he comes out he is going to be mad as fuck and he's going to come after me and they don't that seems not to be understood which is why Alice Ruggles said no don't speak to him don't arrest him that his commanding officer did speak to him I think he was a soldier and he did speak to him but she couldn't see any way that she could be protected there's a shocking conversation I that well it shocked me anyway that I my dad was a policeman and I spoke to a senior policeman while I was researching the book and 
I mentioned some figures that I'd seen that were shocking, which was about a woman suffering, I think, 35 incidents of violence before she goes to the police. And, Is that that's um, the general statistic? Yes, yeah, yeah. And it, uh, stalking's worse. It's 100 incidences of stalking before a woman will go to the police or wow. the victim will go to the police. 100 incidents. We have an amazingly high tolerance for sort of mad behaviour. Um, but this, this chap looked at me, he said, I'll tell you what's shocking. He said that 65% of women deliberately collapse the case so they can go back for more. I said, excuse me. So I thought, I'm not going to argue with, about this with you now. But So I went home where I felt safe and I emailed him and I said, can you point me in the direction of that? And it was in the a set of recently released crime statistics. When I actually unpicked it, it was not true at all. He'd sort of taken a headline and run with it. But actually the difference in statistics between violence that is domestic and violence from somebody that you don't know is only 5% of cases that get collapsed because the victim is unwilling to give evidence. And you thought, well, why is that? Because they're scared. Or because they want to go or back because for they more. Want to go, yes. No, it's because yeah. I mean, they it's, don't see a way out. But it, it's, it's, it seems to me sort of symptomatic that those antediluvian attitudes to women and domestic violence still persist now, even now. Look what you made me do is classed as a memoir, but you have actually done lots and lots of research. There's loads of stats in there. I think the stats are very shocking and I think they speak to it. And I I thought I kind of wanted people to be able to read it sort of two things, really. I mean, the stats are in there as well because they help break up the story a bit so you can have a breather. (laughs) (laughs) Because when I started writing it, I thought, oh, this is going to be such... I tried to get some jokes in. I think I got... Well, your writing is warm and wonderful <laughs> but, and funny. And not, not be too heavy-handed about it, you know. I, I wanted I wanted it to feel as though I was having a conversation with somebody. I wanted them to, you know, understand. I think that, that works, uh, definitely. Uh, yeah, thank you. I, I, I wanted, and I want understanding. I, you know, I said at the beginning of the book, this is not about revenge. It's not about that. It's uh, Which is why everybody's been changed and anonymised and it's been legaled up to the gunnels. It's about understanding. I want people to understand what it is and that it can come in sort of varying degrees. But if you spot it, you need to be able to recognise it. We need to educate ourselves and stop this bollocks about perfect like I say, I, there's some people I feel that are in this relationship. Mm. They, they'll know better than me what mm. their relationship is, <laughs> so they'll already know that they're in it. But how do I help That's them to difficult. escape it? There's a line in Big Little Lies, Leanne Moriarty's uh, Celeste, who is absolutely not who you would think of as being a victim of domestic violence, being sort of very wealthy and extremely handsome husband. But she says, I was always waiting for someone to ask the right question, and they never did. And the right question is incredibly hard to do. Plus, when it's this kind of relationship or any kind of domestic violence thing, there's barely a minute when you are not being watched. So it's difficult for friends and family to safely intervene. So I would say, without hesitation, call Refuge or Women's Aid, call the helplines, look at the websites... I've seen the refuge call centre and they're there all the time and they are professionally trained and they're very discreet and they know how to drop the call 
quickly if somebody finds that you're doing it, because that's the other thing, you can be discovered um, you're in trouble, and ask them for advice and they will point you in the right direction. They're the people to speak to. They're experts on this stuff. They know how this shit works. Helen, yeah. thank you so much for talking to us. And thank you so much for writing Look What You Made Me Do. I mean, I certainly <laughs> recognise lots of stuff and I think it's a really important and brave read and that isn't meant to be patronising, but having been so frightened to actually put it down on paper. it's Thank you so much. Thank you for reading it and for having me here. And, and it's actually, ultimately, it's a positive story because I'm here and the brilliant thing is that in writing it, although I feel... It, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't absolutely terrified about people knowing far more about me than they perhaps would wish to. But it's got rid of the shame. Hi, Hannah here. Just a little warning for you. I know we don't usually do this sort of thing because we usually just swear with abandon, which is kind of why we've ended up with a section about swearing. But just as a pre-warner, we do swear a lot. We've been joined in the studio by Cathy Salaman, language enthusiast and bad language enthusiast. And we're going to talk to her about whether swearing demonstrates a lack of vocabulary or whether it's really fucking cool. This could be the shortest interview. Yeah. Cathy goes, it's really fucking cool. It is dead fucking cool. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, there are times when it's a better idea not to. But, uh, yeah, I swear all the fucking time. <laughs> well, we do. And we have mm. received some, let's call them Feedback. views. Yeah. Yeah. Feedback, that's a good mm. one, on the amount of swearing. What was termed to do. me at one point as industrial language. Mm-hmm. That's completely false because the best swear words I ever hear are when I'm with posh people. I love hearing posh people swear. What's that's like hearing old people swear. Oh, yeah. When old people say cock <laughs> I just love it. Just love it. Yeah. I used to live in Clapham and I remember going to watch the football with someone once at a pub in Clapham and, and I remember hearing a posh person shout, you fucking cunt, at the football. And I was just like, you, you're not pulling that off that well, if I'm honest. This might be biased, but I like a working class northern accent when you're doing swearing. I think yeah. we, we kind of do it pretty well. Yeah. Glaswegian. Think... Oh, yeah. Well, I'm tipping my hat to the Scottish and the Irish yeah. in being a Celtic swear. <laughs> now, you see, I'm from an Irish working class background, so it's kind of ingrained in me. I do object to people who swear who then enunciate all the sounds. She said, oh, fucking hell. Doesn't sound quite as good as our fucking hell. Exactly. No. Yeah. Is there any credence to the idea that swearing demonstrates that you don't have no other words? On <laughs> the contrary, there's been quite a bit of research recently that shows that it shows intelligence, actually, that, that people who swear more are more likely to be intelligent. Fuck yeah. 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 As I suspected. Yeah. <laughs> now, that is quite surprising. Yes. It's a bit the same as when an optician told me that computers don't ruin your eyes. And I think, no, enough people have told me that they do. Yeah. That despite the fact that you're an expert, I'm, I'm strangely <laughs> doubting you. No, it's, it's like people saying you shouldn't go out with wet hair because you'll catch a cold. Exactly, exactly. And it's the same with swearing. And sometimes swearing is a, a release, isn't it? You know, you could, you could swear or you could beat the shit out of someone. I'd rather swear. <laughs> Wow, well, I mean, they are time. quite extreme examples you've thrown yeah. in there. <laughs> you know, just, just this afternoon, for example, I had a choice between swearing very loudly or chucking my computer across the lawn. And I thought swearing's cheaper and uh, less likely to physically harm someone. 
So how is it we've got to the point that certain words are deemed more offensive than other words? There is like a structure of swearing, mm. as in piss, that seems yeah, sort of all right. Really. Yeah. yeah. And then fucking bollocks seem slightly stronger. And then... Oh, I'd say bollocks is less than piss. Oh, yeah, I think bollocks is... Yeah. yeah, buggery bollocks, piss poo wank. They're yeah. all of, the th- of a thing, and also yeah. really lovely to say in that order, by the way. And then right up at the top, the horror of it all: Donald the Trump yeah. bomb and the, the motherfucker one as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. See, I think motherfucker, yeah. I think is funny. Fine. No, yeah. no, some people find that more offensive than than cunt. Oh, I yeah. say quite a lot. Yeah, the hierarchy of swearing. Please yeah. explain, Catherine. I, there's Changes, so much contradicting it? research out there. So a lot of the stuff that that I saw when I first started started becoming enthusiastic about language was that the more anglo-saxon it is the more offensive it is that that all our words do come from anglo-saxon words and that and in fact the word cunt was a legitimate word for it was almost the polite word it was wasn't the, it? And it vagina was, the was word. Rude. exactly yeah. it was the cunt was the word for that part of the anatomy and it, and it's one of those things that it's just evolved over time. I mean, whether it comes in with the um, the idea that we had in the sort of medieval, early modern, that French and Latin were somehow superior to Anglo-Saxon, and that whether it comes from there, I don't know. But I do remember watching, um, oh gosh, years ago, probably more than 20 years ago, Melvin Bragg did a thing on language. But I'll ask you know. the question, did Melvin Bragg say cunts? <laughs> I can't remember. I tell you who did. Brian Blessed was on. I uh, bet he did. Yeah, yeah. Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry did a thing a few years ago, Planet Fry. That it was actually a chap from Keele University who has done this latest research that shows that apparently swearing can help to heal pain and less lower your. Well, they had yeah, their hand in the water. Yeah, and they had to put their hand in a bucket of ice and say fairly neutral words such as table. And then they had to do it again, saying, you know, fuck, bollocks, cunt, whatever. And they could leave their hand in for longer, the, the, the more profane the language. But what they did discover was that it wore off quicker with Brian Blessed, a man yes. that swore more. Yeah, because he was so used to doing it. Because he was it, so yeah. used to swearing, it was like yeah. his brain. It wasn't the release or it distraction. Yeah. I've got yeah. to say, as you two both know, and anyone who follows me on Twitter knows, I was trying to put together an Ikea chest of drawers the other day. It's uh, genuinely one of the most painful experiences of my adult life. There were a lot of expletives and shouting, I really hate you, Ikea. I actually shouted that in, in my bedroom. I really hate you, Ikea. Or Ikea, you fucking can't talk. It just, it didn't really help. I, like the pain I experienced was... Uh... Did you try and put your hand in a bucket of ice? <laughs> At the same time. What, my bleeding knuckles? Yeah, I think it sounds like you needed to put your hand in a bucket of ice. The thought of Brian Blessed bellowing cunt just fills me with joy. I'm just on a, and it's not a swearing thing, but on a Brian Blessed tangent, if you Google Brian Blessed rap, there's a a YouTube of Brian Blessed rapping and it's an absolute joy. There is as well a cultural difference, as in different countries think differently about swearing they think different words refer i mean we had a piece when we were on magazine that i believe joe colfield wrote the comedian joe colfield wrote about how where she was when the story about donald trump grabbed them by the pussy broke and i think she was in america Mm -hmm. that they were starring out or not using the word as if the word were offensive rather than the fact that he had said or done was offensive what so, pets do you got? Well, I've got a dog and I've got a... I can't say it. There's yeah. children in the room. Can't say it. My nan used to say 
It's like the old the old about woman with purple a, yeah, hair from how you being cats. served, isn't yeah. it? Is it Mrs. Slocum? Mrs. Slocum. Yeah. Oh, yes, I'm going to go home to my pussy. Yeah, no, but, oh, um, you're a lovely pussy, aren't you? Yeah, <laughs> one of our neighbours who was like a, an elderly lady who lived on her own, she told my mum once that she just says, oh, she follows me in the bathroom and I sit on the toilet stroking my pussy. <laughs> <laughs> but while we're on that tangent, I'm, when I was a full-time teacher, I used to post a lot on the Times Educational Supplement Forum for teachers. And there was this really stupid censor on there. And teachers are worse than the kids they teach. If they can find a way, I can write the word shit by using the number one or an exclamation mark instead of an I. And people used to come on and say, oh, it's so childish that, that grown people are having to do this to because they want to swear. And I said, oh, actually, it's worse that grown adults are being told they're not allowed to use certain words on an adult side yeah, yeah. for teachers who you know god if, if there's a profession that needs to swear it's teachers but I remember typing in something about I was going to go to Weight Watchers and I'd put the word Weight Watchers the words together and it actually asterisked out the end of weight <laughs> and the beginning of watch did you have a really fat because twat? it spelled twat <laughs> and someone else had put in something to do with going to scunthorpe how pathetic is that and i just think that's actually sadder than somebody who feels the need to swear so why is the c-bomb more offensive than twat when they both mean the same thing because you'd be like, ah, he's a bit of a twat, isn't he? And and yeah. I feel like most people probably wouldn't bat an eyelid. It's but gradations think... of language. And also I think yeah. there is more of a sort of opinion that I'm seeing a lot more that any any swears that use a woman's body part as an insult, yes. people are asking, don't use that anymore. It's not like, you know, a cunt isn't a bad thing. A cunt's a lovely, warm, welcoming thing, if you're lucky. Uh, <laughs> If that's your bag. Oh, no. Don't call but it, it, it does seem to have been a thing that's been agreed. Mm. It's like yeah. a thing that we have agreed upon nationally mm. that that mm. is the most offensive, wo- yeah. offensive yeah. word. When was the meeting? Exactly. Growing up, my dad swore, like, I think some people would get a nosebleed just being in a room with him. <laughs> but he rationed that word more yeah. than he did other words. So yeah. I felt sort of... So even subconsciously, you pick up on the fact that that is a that is a worse word yeah. than the other words. I remember yeah. being that's told possibly not to because he'd yeah. grown up with that idea. I remember, like as a child, being told like that this is the worst, worst word. My mum doesn't really like swearing. I don't think she really likes me dropping the C bomb in conversation. But I will say it in front of her, and yeah, she's I just do. like, I accept why you say it. I accept that to you, it's not the worst thing in the world. And like, fair enough. Why is that word so powerful? Why is that? There is so much power in language. Mm. No, I, I I went to a talk years ago um, given by someone whose name I should remember and I can't for the life of me remember it, at one of the Cambridge colleges. And she just kept using the word cunt as often as she could all the way through because she said, you know, it, it's her argument was we're reclaiming the word um and it's something to do with the fact that it's as, as you were saying before part of a on. woman's genitalia or whatever that that makes it so offen- so offensive but I, i've never really i mean seen lots of different things but never really got to the bottom of why that particular word is so offensive because you know as i said earlier it was once used as the official word just common parlance yeah yeah yeah. physicians would use that word do you think it's just because it sounds 
guttural. Yeah, like yeah. it sounds more aggressive than other. Yeah. Or, but then if you take the meaning what out, if you of whisper it, it, cunt. Yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> that went really. I this thought that went really weird. Little journey. Sorry. Maybe I've feel uneasy. Gone off it now. <laughs> yeah. I've always been a swearer, but I did used to be more careful with that word. Well, it's not I would... for everyone, is it? No. You wouldn't use it like at work, maybe. Well, I, you mean, well, do, I, I am currently like at work, but yeah, yeah. Um, I wouldn't use it in front of my grandfather, for example. But I would use fuck shit and bollocks in front of him. Yeah, that was his name. But I, I have found, <laughs> I have found once you start using, once you start using it, the floodgates are open, yeah. and then it becomes. More and more common use. I mean, my dad and his brothers would just greet each other with this just yeah. barrage of affectionate. But do you think that, that that's a part of it? Because I was wondering if, if there is actually more offence if a woman says the word cunt than if a man says it and who you're saying it to. I mean, would you call a woman a cunt or would you? do we only call men cunts which mm. just seemed it's like wanker I remember when I used to get told off for swearing a lot in the car and everyone was a wanker that's uh, a swear word no but I, I I did get told off for yeah, saying it, is it. A swear word. and and um and and some it was one of my boss used to say to me well what do you call women then and I said well they're all wankers if they cut me up they're all wankers also women can wank that exactly man, yeah. I mean that man I is think, disappointing a lot of ladies I think that actually the the history of, of swear words I think there is a little probably more than a little bit of sexism in there as well. Mm. I think it's to do with who you're saying it to, who's saying it. And I would yeah. call a woman a cunt, by the way. And in fact, we all three of us did call a woman a cunt last night. Oh, I call women cunt. Not, yeah. not to their faces, if I can no. help it. No, but, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not to any other bits no, either, but no. just, you know. But I mean, there's this ridiculous idea that swearing is a more offensive... It's like women being drunk is a more offensive It's not very ladylike, than, yeah. is it, Hannah? No, no, no. And that is who like we're supposed to give a shit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. You do some tutoring, you see younger people. Mm-hmm. A lot of things that... Do you teach them to swear? <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I do. Some of the older ones, particularly if I'm working with A-level pupils, we, we do language investigations and, and a lot of them, for some strange reason, are really fascinated by taboo language. To, so, you know, I do encourage them if they want to. And, you know, you, you they hand in this piece of coursework and it's just littered with cunt bollocks shit well, can i go back in time and you can be my seat oh i'd love to do it now well that's yeah. interesting because i was yeah. going to say that kids tend to react don't they and, and for example drinking mm. apparently drinking is not cool yeah. amongst young kids people don't anymore and i kind of wondering whether maybe swearing Why might not they be spend cool yeah. amongst the Friday kids night anymore. on the park smashing open a <laughs> bottle of merry downside <laughs> trying not to cut yeah. themselves on the top of the bottle <laughs> why don't you want to drink that mad dog 2020 yeah, yeah what fools? kiwi yeah. and strawberry <laughs> <laughs> but they you've answered my question they clearly are still interested yeah in in swearing as a, as a fucking art form what's your favorite swear word kathy it, it, it's a Combined, I like cunty bollocks. Cunty bollocks. I just no, like right. cunty bollocks together. I just think it's got a certain ring. Because people say that swearing is basically it's an the the argument is it's an unimaginative nah. use of language, right? But Mickey's just dropped spaff rat. <laughs> <laughs> I was. I am inordinately proud of yeah. that. Yeah, that's uh, great. Flange panther. Yeah. Well, not even swears though. Yeah. There's, there's no swear words in it, but spaff rat. 
And yesterday, Fern Britton said something at our show that my I've never oh, heard anyone except my mum say, which is, oh, shit a brick. <laughs> she, also, she also, with the first line, she said something about crusty bum holes. Yeah. You know, I just think Fern Britton saying that. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, as someone who loves swearing, what I really like was what my nan used to do because she was Irish and she used to not swear. She did say feckin' sometimes, but yeah. mostly she didn't swear. But she did blaspheme, which mm. for a really religious woman was was really surprising. It was basically Jesus in different locations. Yes. So blaspheming. Yes. So it's, it's, Jesus Christ, sometimes he was on a church roof. Yeah. Sometimes he was on a bicycle. Yeah. Oh, Christ um, on the bike. And, yeah. Sometimes he had yeah. other people with him. Sometimes it was a full-on Jesus, Mary, Mary and Joseph. Joseph. Yeah. What, what about sweet and, baby Jesus? Yeah, yeah, sweet baby Jesus. Holy, holy Mary, mother of God. She yeah. used to say that a lot. That is my perfect yeah. swearing, that stuff. And get around swearing. blasphemy. Like, getting around yeah. blasphemy. All the stuff that's come from, like, and it sounds a bit like Dick Van Dyke. Like Mary Poppins, go blimey. Yeah. Yeah. So it was supposed to be like, God blind me. That's it where it yeah. comes yeah. from. But go blimey. Yeah. And truth as well, I only recently it's discovered, truth. comes from God, um, God's truth. God's, yeah, God's truth. That's yeah. actually yeah. what yeah. I yeah. it was. Oh, yeah. Who knew? Yeah. Me and Kathy, yeah. quite clearly. Well, not, <laughs> yeah. not me. I always said if, if I was forced to become a nun, because you know, quite often. <laughs> I love it. Like, I always said. Well, if I was you know, we used to talk about stuff like this when we still. Like, I had to go to a Catholic school. You yeah. know, oh, if you were forced Same to be here. a nun, what yeah. would you be? So, a nun? Um, a nun? Yeah. A nun. No, but you get to pick You're a name. Nuns. You get to pick a name. And in certain orders, they pick a name and they pick a miracle afterwards as well. And so I always would be Sister Josephine, because it just sounds quite... Oh, Josephine. Sister <laughs> Josephine of the Burning Bush. <laughs> that would just be immense. That was going to be my nun name. That's fun. Yeah. But as soon as you started that story, it reminded me of the conversation we had in the pub last night, where kind of just like came in and was just like, and that is why I find time travel bonkers. We're <laughs> 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 like, well, like, on part three. Last week, we were lucky enough to be joined in the studio by Laura Spirit co-founder and co-president of Our Future, Our Choice, a youth campaign seeking to democratically stop Brexit. We started by asking her how and why it all came about. We founded Our Future, Our Choice about two months ago, but we've been talking and discussing kind of anti-Brexit movements for the last six months. And we basically just came together first as a group of students and then as a group of more broadly young people who think that Brexit is a disaster and that it needs to be democratically stopped. So that's kind of how we came together. What's the age group? We range from 16 to about 23 at the moment. Although actually that said, Femi, who you might have seen our spokesman, is, tw- is 27. So he's, he's slightly older. So yeah, we're taking kind of a wide range of ages. I mean, we do have our own opinions on this, but why do you think Brexit's been such a disaster? So, wow, so many reasons. <laughs> I voted for Remain in the first instance for a variety of all the reasons that a lot of the people voted for Remain. I believe that the myths of global Britain, you know, were were myths, essentially. And so I've always been pro-Remain, but especially since the referendum, seeing the negotiations deteriorate and knowing that now it is absolutely certain that Project Fear was correct and that there is no good deal for the UK within the EU, I've come to be even more resolutely opposed to our Less myths. negotiations and more negotiations. Yeah. Yeah. It is an utter shambles. And <laughs> I, I suppose, can I ask how old you are, Lara? Yeah, 21. You're 21. So this has been sort of the point of like of your sort of maybe political awareness, certainly since you've been able to vote. Mm-hmm. This is literally what you've seen happen yeah. in front of you. But no, from someone who's seen a lot more, this is a shambles. Yeah. This is, I've never seen anything I'm like this. I've never seen anything 
I've heard That's tell crazy. of like governments where people were wheeling round wheelbarrows full of cash because it has lost all of its worth. And it still feels like Brexit might end up much, much worse than that. I mean, I know we live in our own bubbles, but is that the general mood amongst most young people that you know? Well, yeah, amongst most people that young people that I know at university, you know, most of them, if not only, you know, only a couple voted to leave. So most of them are, are very strongly remain. But everybody is really disheartened with the way the negotiations is going and everybody would definitely vote remain again tomorrow. So Will, one of our co-founders, initially voted leave, which is interesting and is now obviously very pro-remain. It has to be said there is still a lot of disillusionment amongst young people and I think growing up in the political climate that we have has been really unhelpful towards that as well. So a lot of our campaign will also be on focusing um, our energies towards letting people know that it actually can be stopped because at the moment a lot of people are just like, oh, it's so awful, but please get on with it because I just want it to end and it's such a nightmare. But actually when you explain kind of all the different ways that we might actually be able to stop Brexit, people become a bit more animated. Young people get a bit of a hard time when people talk about voting and democracy and whatnot. You know, uh, historically, younger people tend to turn out and vote less than older people. What we've seen like in the last kind of like year, it's been described as a youth quake so a massive turnout to go and vote predominantly for Jeremy Corbyn at the last election or rather the Labour Party is stuff like that horribly patronising as a young person that's really interesting I mean I personally haven't found it patronising in people I think any attention at the moment that's given to youth voices in politics is really welcome but I do think that a lot of the media response to Corbyn, I think essentially as well, because a lot of the mainstream media dislikes Corbyn. So it's an easy, a more easier way for them to kind of say, oh, yeah, look, it's, it's he's giving all of these young people really unrealistic promises. And isn't it great? And isn't it all very idealistic? But actually, I think that it's been very worrying for a lot of the establishment seeing Jeremy Corbyn have such a support. And especially within the more centrist branch of the Labour Party, it's been especially concerning. But I don't think necessarily that it's patronising. Some of the media response that we've had from our campaign. I mean, predominantly, it's been hugely positive and encouraging. But some of it has definitely been kind of, we've been referred to as like youngsters and kids, and it's very like Scooby-Doo-ish. And so, <laughs> and it's kind of, we find that narrative fun, but I think at a certain point, and especially along the road, if we are more successful a few months down the line, it will come to a point, if that still continues, where it might slightly frustrate the credibility of our movement. So, In fairness, though, if you can get rid of the Tory government and they get to say we would have gotten away with it if we weren't <laughs> pesky kids... Then you you need to own that. Yes, yeah. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I saw Femi on Sky News. He was absolutely tremendous, and a lot of people I know, not just young people, people my age, older people. Who really? Let's old. not forget. <laughs> let's not forget old people. My mum voted Remain. In fact, my, almost every pensioner in my family voted Everyone Remain. Everyone in my family voted Remain. Yeah. So, so it is a wide group of people. Everyone felt quite invigorated by watching him doing such a great job of making such perfect sense. What sort of response have you had? We have to be very careful that we don't come across as purporting a message which says that we are young people and we are anti-old people and we believe that our vote is worth more than them because that's, of course, not what we're trying to do. We're just trying to make sure that our voice is heard on the same level as everybody else's. But it's interesting, actually, because so from our crowdfunding, I would say most of the donations come from older people and a lot of them will be will be kind of saying, I'm 65, I'm, I'm too old to be with you, but I'll support you kind of thing. And so we have generally had a really, really positive response from people. But, I mean, we've had some more amusing criticism from kind of the spectator Brendan O'Neill did an article which compared us to he called us a cult of youth 
and he compared us to Italian fascists Ugh. and like Nietzschean serpent slayers. It was quite amusing, but also just ridiculous. And that that was published on Spectator and that Brendan O'Neill is a very successful, you know, mm. journalist and writer is, is quite amazing, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess in a way, it's you're so worthy of attention that you're going to mm. get flack. Hopefully, hopefully that's the way that we see it. Yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, we is... did, we started and we were kind of like, whoa, yeah, all publicity, good publicity, definitely. I had one where I wrote an article for Times Red Box and I was reading the comments and there was some really mean comments. Never read um, And the yeah, comments. this is the, the thing, comments. but nobody told me. Um, and so I think that's the thing now is kind of we're getting we're just being like, yeah, it's great. If, if, you know, people feel like they have the time to comment and say you're a stupid young person, then like that's great that they think so strongly about it. And surely maybe we're making a difference if we're doing that. Can I ask you what you've actually got planned? What sort of pr- practical things you have in place? Yeah, so um, we have a listening tour, which is going to take place in like two months from now. We're hoping in May. I'm especially inspired by how efficient the En Marche campaign was in France. And what they did with a lot of their young supporters was they got them to go to a number of different constituencies and just talk to people and not campaign actively, but just listen. So we're planning on doing a listening tour and we want to coincide that with um, some kind of campaign which seeks to kind of uh, like polling or questionnaires which seek to ask a lot of the leave voting people in leave constituencies why they voted so and, and and play or explore some of the age dynamics within that and then that hopefully will that will be like a huge campaign and then a couple of months down the line from that we're then going to go and say actively like this is our campaign and, and we are campaigning for this and that will be more deeply into the summer which is kind of like the crux point before obviously parliament comes back and yeah and the vote happens but this will also be more practically coincided with the i mean we're mainly at the moment driving content so we have so we have like a great number of creative young people who are coming up with kind of sketches various like different ideas for videos which we're going to put out on our social media and then kind of more consistently and broadly we have a university network so we have over 40 representatives, 40 universities, which have representatives who are all setting up their own groups within their universities. And then Callum, I don't know if you saw his message to Westminster. He's one of our no. other co-founders, but he is working on kind of non-university networks. So within groups of young people who aren't in full-time education, so maybe they did apprenticeships or didn't go to university, because I think the danger is that university networks are such low-hanging fruit that actually, mm. like, if we want to credibly be a youth movement, we can't just claim to represent students, which are, at the end of the day, I know we have a hard lot with tuition fees, but we are the elite, so it's kind of, we need to be able to make sure that, like, we are reaching as many young people as, as we possibly can. Yeah. Have you been surprised by how much backup you've got so far? Yeah. What's been surprising is I think we're quite late to the game, and although a lot of us obviously campaigned and stronger in and, and have always been remain, the fact that we're starting this now to a lot of people has been, I mean, a lot of people have said, you know, why now? It's quite late. How, you know, why are you so late to the game? But then most people, I think, have been incredibly supportive and young people, we've been really pleasantly surprised by how many of them are willing to get on board and say they're willing to campaign and support us. So it's, yeah, it's been really great. Has it felt like you've not had a voice in the past? I think Brexit was especially like that because we obviously young people voted you know 73 74 percent of young people voted to remain so we are the most united voice against brexit and yet obviously brexit has has gone ahead and also i guess there's been no kind of engagement with the issues that will affect young people through brexit but also i think more broadly liberal young people or young people who are in support of Corbyn and and that kind of group of politically active people have been campaigning over the past couple of years for this grand social pact and they they support a whole load of of kind of very liberal policies which are very ambitious and it's kind of making sure I think that we can say to them which I think is completely true that Brexit affects 
all of those mm. and not for the better. And it's going to be very difficult to deliver on Jeremy Corbyn's ambitious policies while we have this Brexit mess going on. It's interesting that you keep mentioning Corbyn because he doesn't have a Brexit plan. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. And, and I think so our, you know, one of our key aims is to persuade Corbyn to back um, a second referendum. And that is, um, you know, that's a strategic point because obviously we need Labour in Parliament to back a second referendum. But more broadly, Labour, you know, Corbyn has drawn so much of his support from young people. And yeah. not only that, mm. he has spent his entire career claiming to represent the voices of young people and claiming that those voices have not yet been heard. I think some of the reasons for Labour's constructive ambiguity up to this point They're has been... They're their bets, aren't they? Yeah, well, it's, it's you know, it's sound electoral strategy in a yeah. way because they, you know, Corbyn has to has to find a way of balancing this, like, coalition which doesn't necessarily fit very nicely together. Mm. And a third of um, his Labour voters obviously voted for leave. And so he's he needs to be very wary of making sure that he values that. But on that point, I would say that a lot of the northern constituencies which did vote leave have been shown in recent impact reports to be the ones which will be hit hardest oh, by leave. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's his right, responsibility, yeah, I think, to rethink that. And there's a democratic argument there, definitely. Mm. In that case, are you seeing amongst people who are joining you, are you seeing people who are coming from across the political spectrum? Because I think, to me, the most important thing about Brexit is if I have to end up voting with a Tory and agreeing with a Tory, mm-hmm. then so be it, because that's yeah. what's going to have yeah. to happen to save this country. I'd even hold hands with one. <laughs> yeah. oh, I'd, give him, I'd give him a hug yeah. if we could... But you know, if Anna, Su- sick, yeah, if Anna Subri was standing in my seat, I would possibly consider voting mm. for her if, if, if I had if, if the alternative was just one. people who were pro-Brexit so mm. are, you, are you seeing a spread of people yeah we are and we're very we're very cautious of we really strongly believe that we are a single issue group we're not a partisan group and we will back, you, Kip. We, <laughs> we will back anybody hope you know within bounds who opposes um, Brexit and so for us <laughs> within bounds and so Anna Subri for example you know we're completely in support of her we think that if you know her opposition is incredibly brave and it's very very important that there is a cross-party debate on this and ultimately you know we need 13 Tory MPs come October so it's it's just a necessary step but yes I think obviously young people who are politically active um, amongst our groups are I'd probably say majority Labour but we have seen actually a lot of support from 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 a number of student conservatives and and young conservatives so it's been yeah it's been interesting geographically speaking Mm. Is it? Is it? All I'm going to chuck socio-economically speaking in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. So this is again. This is a. Obviously, we're very young and we are working incredibly hard to diversify. But we, in terms of university representatives, we have representatives in in a lot of places in the north and Scotland. We have representatives really all over the country. But it's making it, that doesn't necessarily mean anything when you have maybe a representative in Durham who's from London. Yeah, exactly. Do you know what yeah. I mean? So it's yeah. university wise, it's it can potentially distort actually how representative you are being. And something that Callum is really passionate about and is working hard on is, as we're saying, non students and, and youth groups. And we did a trip up to Hull two weeks ago to meet with some youth groups there and some people there to talk about how we might be able to reach those groups because students are, you know, ultimately low-hanging fruit and, as you said, socioeconomically, you know, often from the kind of top. So it's... um, And and are the most fortunate. So it's definitely... It is difficult to reach those people. But I really do think that Brexit is maybe the issue which has more potential than any other to mobilise young people to make a change regardless of their socio-geographic background. And that is in this country because Mm. what's happened is exactly the same week that you launched this. Young people in America have stood up and said no Mm. to guns. And it's quite incredible how suddenly youth activism Mm. 
almost came from nowhere within about a fortnight. It leapt up. And that, again, that doesn't have to be about Republicans and Democrats. Yeah. It has to be about, can we end this Common madness? Sense, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, can we end this madness? I have a question. How do you feel about the word youthquake? That's really interesting. I think, as we were talking about stuff being patronising, I think implied in youthquake is the notion that young people voting is in itself kind of unusual and revolutionary to the point of being this incredible thing that we should all stand up and take note of when actually it's like our democratic right and it should be something that should happen in a healthy democracy anyway. But I do think that a term like youthquake, which does imply and, and hopefully encourages young people to vote and to have a difference, can also be a positive thing of saying, like, we do have a difference. And I think that for a lot of people, Jeremy Corbyn's election is the embodiment of that. So you are grind for Corbyn. Yeah. <laughs> but also so diplomatic. I, you're going to be in the House of the Commons. Yeah. <laughs> is um, politics something that you want to go into? I don't think elected politics is something that I want to necessarily go into. Um, we need more amazing women in politics, oh, yeah. though. I don't think I'm an amazing woman. Okay, um, right. But I, well, right, we'll no, sort we you out. You're, you're, you're a lot more articulate um, than, than us three, to be honest. Certainly the 21-year-old me was. Women in politics are so, so needed. And I think it's it's something which has made me incredibly sad over the last two years, reading about women who have received a lot of abuse in Parliament and not even getting the requisite support for the abuse that they're receiving. And I think that Parliament still has a huge way to go in terms of gender equality. Definitely. Friend of the show, Jess Phillips, mm. says the way to, you know, you've got to... You've got to get the the young ones in, and she would be she'd have you by the ear, oh, yeah. getting you into the House of Parliament. I reckon. Is that what puts you off? That lack of support. Literally, in our two weeks, maybe of of fully existing, we've been lucky enough to you know go to Westminster a few times and at times and meet politicians, and the number of times that men have met Will and I, so we we co-president the organisation together, and there's been this kind of. One, the man will be like oh where are you and we'll be like oh I'm at Oxford doing PPE he's like I did Oxford at PPE what are the chances and they oh, have yeah, this, what like, are the chances what are the chances in Westminster and so it's it's it is one of those things but I think it shouldn't put me off and there are so many inspiring women in politics who are continuing regardless and making a huge difference and so I don't think that's necessarily what would put me off I just I think that it actually is potentially a bit of a thankless job and if I do in I mean I'm still I still don't know what I want to do with my life but if I do if I do have like a a, you know a calling and I do get I think a lot of a lot of I think the best reasons that some people go into politics just is like irrepressible anger with the way the world is and I think if that I mean currently I have that maybe potentially more idealistic student view of I can make change regardless and I think maybe if I if I in a few years time think that I'm not getting anywhere Plus, I think I think our politicians should spend a bit of time in the real world before they go straight into mm. politics. So you've I got, agree. You've yeah. got you've got the right attitude, and you can you can change your mind at whatever point yeah. about mm. what career you want. Hannah was literally just discussing about what she'd do if she was a nun. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, all yeah. good wishes to yeah. you and your yeah, family. Yeah, look with it Thank all. You. Keep an eye on it. How can people get involved, and how can people donate to your crowdfunder? Yes, so we have a PayPal pool. If you Google our future, our choice PayPal pool, it will come up, which is our crowdfunder. And if you go to our website, which is ofoc.co.uk, and on the homepage, you'll be asked to put your email in. If you could put your email in, that'd be hugely helpful, and we will let you know how you can help. But also, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, our organisation is, and then Femi as well. And would I have to be a youth? to put my email address no, in? Or is no, no. Jen chomping at the bit yeah. that she might get called a youth there. <laughs> uh, I'm a millennial. Fuck you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> All right. Jesus. <laughs> I'll have a drink, mate. Calm down. <laughs>
Yes. So anyone, anyone, can sign anyone, up to... definitely, okay. definitely, yeah. You play ball like a girl. Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks. That part of the week where we send the patriarchy packing for a lengthy stay in the sin bin as we discuss all things women's sport. Last weekend was a big one for rugby fans. Yeah, I know, dudes, whatever. But I'm actually talking about women's rugby. The Tyrrells Premier 15s, which is a top-flight women's league, was underway, and you could even watch some of it via the magic of digital technology on the internet. It's not the telly, but it is a good start, so more of this, please. England also took on France in the Six Nations. Unfortunately, they were beaten 18-17 in the nail-biting showdown, But on the plus side, that match was watched by a record crowd of 17,440 people. And it was also announced last week that 30,000 women and girls in the UK are now playing rugby. And that is double the number of four years previously. So that is excellent progress. Now, all of this shows you the age-old proverb of a fictional Jim Morrison rings very much to be true. If you book them, they will come. I mean, that's a metaphor, but it works, right? Yeah? And while we're on the subject, I should just say that we recorded a bunch of bonus interviews to release for International Women's Day last week, including one with England captain Sarah Hunter. So that's well worth a listen if you're interested in rugby. And you can find that wherever the chuff you found this. So Acast, iTunes, whatevs. Also last week, England Rugby announced a partnership with the Women's Sports Trust to encourage more men and boys to support women and girls in sport. The Onside campaign aims to increase the audience for women's sport, drive more sponsorship into the women's game and increase media coverage. So guys, if you're listening, you remember watching Lizzie Arnold absolutely bossing it at the Winter Olympics the other week, yeah? So, I mean, it's actually okay to watch women's sport even when it's not the Olympics. And a top tip for you, it's super cheap compared to dude sports and there's less chance of having a bottle of piss thrown at you. Pissing in a bottle is, let me tell you, a logistical nightmare without an appendage. Props this week, no pun intended, boom, see what I did there, to New Zealand Rugby, who've announced a landmark professional pay deal for their women's team. And by landmark, it's obviously still a drop in the ocean compared to the men's team, but it is progress, and we like progress. Also on offer, as well as retainers and training camp fees, will be support for mothers in the squad by way of making funds available so that team members returning from maternity leave are able to bring their kids with them during squad assembly until they reach the age of one. Hello everyone in the world of work, are we listening? Yeah? Cool. Also worth a mention while I'm bigging up opportunities to watch women playing sport... The Hockey World Cup is taking place in England this year in July and more than 80,000 tickets have been sold already, which means they've outsold the number they sold for last year's fantastic Cricket World Cup already. So what I'm saying is you might want to get in there sharpish if you want to get tickets for that. And I repeat, if you book them, they will come. I think it works. Now, swiftly on. The Pyeongchang Paralympic Games got off to a cracking start for Team GB last week as Millie Knight and her guide Brett Wilde won silver in the downhill skiing event on the first day of the Games. And they followed that up with another silver in the Super G. Mena Fitzpatrick and Jen, I'm going to say KO, KO, not sure, took bronze also for Team GB. And you can watch all the coverage of those games on Channel 4 in the UK. If you're listening to this on Wednesday, Knight and Wilde might have picked up some more medals already. 
That's all for me this week. Join me next week when we will be chatting to Sophie Shapter, the Cambridge University Boat Club's Cox, and that's ahead of the boat race on March the 24th. As ever, you can tweet me at InspiraGen if you want to talk sports or occasionally flat pack furniture and interactions with my neighbour's mum. Until next week. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy, what Disney did you did this week? This week I watched 2009's Up. Now, as anyone who actually knows me or has read anything that I've ever written, Up is or has traditionally been one of my favourite Disney films. Not since childhood, obviously, because I'm too old to have been a child in 2009. No. Uh, But certainly since I've seen it, it has been, in my opinion, one of the best, if not the best, released under the Disney label. Have you guys seen it? I have seen it, but a long, long time ago. And I remember enjoying it, but I can't really remember very much more than The House and the Balloons and There's a Dog in It. I mean, I've seen bits of it and, yeah, what she said, basically. So get your own ideas, Jen. Did you like it? Well, there are a couple of things that actually predispose me to this film, which I should probably make clear first. Yes, please. Um, Firstly, I have an incredibly happy memory of watching this. About six years ago, Cambridge Film Festival erected a couple of huge screens around the city and put on a series of films that were free to watch. And one weekend, my parents brought my nephew to stay with me and we went to watch it up. He was about five and my dad had actually not long had open heart surgery. But it'd been like a gloriously warm day. So we thought, yeah, let's sit out on the meadow and watch this nice family friendly film. And then the sun went down and it was fucking freezing. <laughs> so freezing, in fact, that no word of a lie, St John's Ambulance turned up and started handing out those four blankets <laughs> to give people after marathon. Did you feel like you'd just run for 26 miles? Yeah. And yet we stayed and watched it all, which I think is an indication of how much not just me, but all of us loved up. Secondly, it was written by a team of three men, all of whom will get a mention at some point in this week's DDD. But I'm going to start with Tom McCarthy because I love him. Actor, Oscar-winning, writer, Oscar-nominated director and creator of my favourite film in the world, The Station Agent. Have we seen that, guys? No, No, it's on my notepad to watch it because every time you say it, you tell me it's brilliant. Well, actually, Up treads a lot of the same ground as The Station Agent. It's about loneliness and grief and the kindness of strangers and how the key to recovery is to let somebody in. And if that sounds... All sound very Hannah Dunleavy yeah, to me. Seriously, that sneer at the end when she went, let somebody in. You can't see her face, but it's it, she basically, her face said, that is never going to happen. And if that sounds, you know, dark, it actually up kind of is dark. The film covers death and ageing. It's got a miscarriage in it. It's got infertility. And that's all in like the first 15 minutes. And at the same time, it's really funny. It's gen- like genuinely heartwarmingly funny. Like hilariously funny in part. So yes, I loved it. Possibly even more than I loved it the first few times that I saw it. Because I've actually seen a lot of tosh in over the past eight months. And Mate, looking I'm going to stop reminding you that you did choose to do this. Yeah, and looking at it amongst that backdrop just like really highlights one absolutely shiny gem of a film this is. In fact, in fact I would go so far to say there was only one copy of it up left in the world and it was in a burning building. I would go in there to get it. 
And I don't mean that in a Donald Trump, you know, if I would run in and kill the shooter with my bare hands. Oh, no, I wouldn't. I mean, yeah, I mean, I would do it. I actually love Up. Do you want to wow. know a bit of plot? Yeah, sure, go yeah. for it. Why should we love Up? Yeah. Okay, so the film opens in... I'm going to guess it's the early 1930s. And with a little boy who's called Carl, he's in the cinema, he's watching one of those Pathé-style newsreels about Charles Muntz, who's an adventurer who has discovered many weird and wonderful creatures in South America while exploring in his massive airship. Muntz, however, is not believed by American scientists and they think that this giant bird skeleton that he's come back with is actually a hoax. On his way home from the cinema, Carl encounters Ellie, who's a wild-haired girl, huge gaps in her teeth, who's turned one of the abandoned houses on her street into a clubhouse. And she immediately takes over Carl's life in a good way, in that she just decides she's going to be his best friend and hang around with him forever. And she tells him about her dream to move her clubhouse to this place called Paradise Falls, which is a place that Charles Muntz found that bird. And then in the next 10 minutes, they get married and they grow old together. And then, spoiler alert, Ellie dies. Yeah. It's a classic Disney start. Well, funny you should say that because I actually have written here. Hang on. Are you saying that's just a case of Disney killing off the woman again? I can get that. But actually, it's completely different. And what is different about it is that although Ellie dies, she actually continues to drive the plot of the film. She continues to be absolutely central to all the decisions that are made in the film. And although you don't actually see her again, Carl does actually talk to her constantly throughout the rest of the film. So she is actually way more present. It's, it's not like, you know, when Bambi's mum dies in the, in the next scene, he's just jollying around and he's over it. It's about what happens when someone dies and leaves a massive hole mm-hmm. that, that you need to fill. So anyway, the widowed Carl, he continues to soldier on in this increasingly isolated life. Widowed. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Something that's best demonstrated by the fact that his entire neighbourhood is being redeveloped and all sorts of people want him out of his home. And his tiny house is now surrounded by huge, like, apartment blocks. And it it really reminds me of, I know Mick's seen it because I talked about it to her yesterday. Have you seen Batteries Not Included, Jen? No. Classic, I know of it. It's classic eighties, like classic eighties yeah, yeah. film with Jessica yeah. Tandy in it. I actually think this must be a nod to Brad Bird, Man of Legend in Pixar, because that was actually the first film he ever wrote. Batteries not included. Long and short, Carl ends up being deemed a menace to society and told he has to be moved into an old people's home. But instead, he decides to attach to attach thousands of balloons to his house, which isn't actually as odd as it sounds because. That was what he did. He sold balloons. And he decides to fly his house to Paradise Fall, as Ellie wanted to do when she was a little girl. He accidentally takes a stowaway with him in the form of an adventure scout called Russell, um, who is a boy very much in need of a good male role model. The scene in which the house takes off is probably the best way to talk about how brilliantly animated this is, because it's seen from so many different angles. But it's also seen as as a shadow moving along a busy street. It's seen as a reflection going up in like office buildings when the house takes up. Absolutely beautiful. Animation is really, really good. Together, Carl and Russell make it to Paradise Falls, where the film, the tone of the film almost immediately changes and it quickly becomes very, very, very funny. They meet Doug, um, who is a dog. He wears a collar and it means that he can communicate. Well, actually, all the dogs in it do, but Doug's the first one we meet. It means that he can actually communicate 
humans can understand what he's thinking through this collar on his voice, which is possibly the best idea that anyone has ever had for jokes in a Disney film. It is really, really funny. For some reason, they think that the Adventure Scout is a small mailman and all of the dogs constantly refer to him as the small mailman. And when they're in a pack, you can often hear some of them just having their own thoughts and them coming out out loud going, I must lick the small mailman. I must chase the small mailman. I must not bite the small mailman. And it's it's proper funny. He's actually voiced by Bob Peterson, who is is another of the third of the the writers. They also encounter Kevin, who actually turns out to be a female. And that is one of a breed of the bird that Charles Muntz claimed existed all those years ago. And she too is a comic goldmine, despite the fact she doesn't actually speak at all in it. Ed Asner, who is Carl, is absolutely terrific in this, as is little Jordan Nagai, who was actually cast as Russell when his older brother went for an audition and the casting directors were more taken by that little kid in the corner who won't shut the fuck up. I wonder how that um, sibling (laughs) relationship is coming along. Yep. There's also Christopher Plummer as Muntz, and it's directed by Pete Doctor, who is the third in that group of people, and he does such an amazing job. So you might be asking, you know, where are all the women in this? And in truth, there aren't actually many characters in it at all. In fact, after they moved the action shifts to Paradise Falls, there's actually only three human characters in it, and they are all men. I actually going to say this doesn't actually bother me in this, because Up is a film about little boys and the men they look up to. And therefore, that makes sense that mm-hmm. those all those people in that scenario would be men. It's not like Ratatouille, which is there is there is room for women in it. There isn't room for, for extra characters in the story because it's basically about those three people. And their influence on each and other. And their influence on each other. Are there any of the dogs women? No, but again, it kind of fits with the story. Kevin's a woman. Kevin's a woman. Kevin is a woman. Um, They call Kevin because they automatically assume that she will be a boy and they don't discover till later that she will be. Are they going to lift up her skirts? Sorry. (laughs) No, it's part of the plot. I don't want to say any more about the plot because it's... um, Yeah, it's spoilers. Because, again, it's one of these things I think that everybody should watch. Like I say, I fucking love it. Okay, well, I kind of think I know the answer, <laughs> but what score are we giving it? I'm going to give it five. Oh, my goodness. Five. I know, that's two, two in fives a in a row. What the hell? Five what's out of what? Five cones of shame out of five. If you don't get it, then you should just watch it. the film. Do you get it? I do get it. Stop questioning me. That was this week's show. Thanks very much for listening. I know there's probably nothing more suspicious sounding than the sentence, I live near a school, it's 3.30, so if you can hear screaming in the background, that's what it is. But in this case, it actually turns out to be true, so just a small disclaimer there. If you enjoyed that chat that we had with the brilliant Helen Wormsley-Johnson, there is actually more of that, which will be released as our Sunday Chops, so keep your eyes out for that. We've also got a playlist for you this week. Based on the rather sweary appearance by Kathy Salomon, we have a playlist of songs that are proper sweary. Next week, we've got some great guests coming up for you. We've spoken to Sophie Shapter, who will be taking part in the boat race. She is coxing the Cambridge women's team. We've also had a chat with Sheila Chandra and Lisa Hammond about disabled creatives. Laura Jackson came in to tell us why we should never be afraid going on holiday by ourselves. And we spoke to the brilliant Dr Terry Simpkin about imposter syndrome. 
which was really, really interesting and may have fixed a few problems in me. If you'd like a ticket to our live shows, our next one is at the Leicester Square Theatre in April. We've got some great guests. We have Shazia Mirza, Lucy Mangan, Rachel Paris, and another special guest who is yet to be announced. Uh, maybe they will have been announced by the time uh, you hear this. Maybe not. But keep your eye out because that will be exciting. A small favour to ask for you. It would be super helpful if you could rate and review us on iTunes. If you can tell your friends that you like us and that they should listen to us. And if you follow us on Twitter, where we are at Standard Issue UK, or we're also on Facebook, we're on Instagram, or you can follow Mick or Jen or I. We'd all love to hear from you. Not much else left for me to say, I don't think, except stay frosty. Standard Issue for all women.